Welcome to the First Assembly podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message and find encouragement through the Holy Spirit. If you have a Bible or a device, Psalm 88, praise God. Uh, we are somewhere in the Psalms, chapter 88. If you're a new friend or an old friend or not yet a friend, if you're here in person or if you're online, I just want to take my opportunity to greet you. My name is Cody, and I have the immense privilege of being a part of the pastoral team here at First Assembly. And I want to offer a warning up front. You know, as a community, as a church, we're a community of high praise. Are you with me? Uh, I love, I'm so grateful for our worship teams. I'm so grateful that we're a people of high praise because we serve the God who is most high. And yet, uh, this morning, we're going to go very low and very dark. And my hope is that if we can trace with the psalmist this morning, that we actually might find uh, light on the other side of the darkness. But I want to give you a warning that before we see light, we're going to see dark. Are you with me? Can we do that together this morning? Okay, first let's pray together. Holy Spirit, come. Teacher, come. As you've been doing for millennia, would you teach us and guide us into all truth? Holy Spirit, you have been leading and guiding your people to understand your word over the course of this long and winding history. And so we ask for your help this morning. I ask for your help this morning. And may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And together we all said, amen, amen. amen. In the preface to his commentary, no, we're good. In the preface to his uh, commentary on the book of Psalms, German theologian and reformer John Calvin described the Psalter with these words. He said this, I have been accustomed To call this book, I think not inappropriately, an anatomy of the human soul. An anatomy of the human soul, for there is not an emotion which anyone can be conscious that is not here represented as in a mirror. Calvin is saying the Psalms are like a mirror reflecting our own emotions. He goes on to say the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all griefs, Sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men and women are accustomed to be agitated. You see, according to Calvin, the Psalter perfectly describes every aspect of the inner working of the human soul. The Psalms offer us a mirror. They reflect our own experiences. They are a window into the entire range of human emotions. These psalms that were woven together over the course of millennia have served as a companion and as a guide to teach the people of God to learn to bring their joys and griefs, their sorrows, their fears, and their doubts to God. In other words, we find all of ourselves in the psalms. Are you with me? There is no part of you, there is no part of me, the good, the bad, or the ugly, that we will not find expressed, articulated, and in some sense even validated in the Psalms. And all of this, that the Psalms are an anatomy of the human soul, they explain the abundance of lament, grief, sorrow, and darkness in the Psalms. I don't know if you know this, but the word Psalm means to praise 
to shine. The Psalms are odes of praise. And the Psalter in general, in Psalm 88 in particular, invite us to ask some very important questions. Here they are if you're taking notes. What does praise look like? What does praise feel like? What does praise sound like? As the world is filled with terrorism and political violence, as millions are displaced from nations and homes destined to live in destitute circumstances, as children are literally born to die from malnourishment, abuse, sex trafficking, and corruption, as human beings become increasingly tribalistic and desensitized to the suffering of others, as our planet, God's good creation, groans from exploitation, pollution, and bloodshed. And none of this even begins to touch on our own pain and suffering as marriages, despite our best intentions, fall apart. As we experience loneliness and depression, as those closest to us die from illness or suicide, as our children stray from the very faith that we sought to instill within them, as we wrestle often silently with our own mental health struggles, doubts and losses, sadness, grief, pain, sorrow, question, accusation, and protest. What does praise look like? What does praise sound like? What does praise feel like? Does praise look like sadness and grief? Does praise feel like pain and sorrow? Does praise sound like accusation and protest? You see, I think somewhere along the journey, many of us have been taught that this is not what praise should look like, feel like, or sound like. I think the vast majority of us have learned that God is not really interested in us bringing our pain, our questions, or our accusations, because at the end of the day, he really just wants our celebratory praise. So when it comes to our interactions with God, we've learned to kind of bottle it all up, to bury our emotions, frustrations, and accusations deep beneath the surface, making sure that they never see the light of day, making sure that we sanitize our pain and suffering by using cleaned up spiritual language, by wearing masks, and often by play acting our theatrical performances of praise. And in the end, the myopic form of praise has taught the vast majority of us that we cannot be gut-wrenchingly honest with God about our situations. We can't accuse God of evil. We can't scream and shout. And we most certainly cannot question his purposes. And yet in spite of all of this, friends, the Psalms reveal a jarringly different way of interacting with God. You know, I don't know if you know this, around one-third of the Psalms are categorized as lament. That means that 50 of the 150 psalms reveal raw, honest, gut-wrenching protest, accusation, and anger toward God. One-third of the psalms show us unsanitized, non-platitudinal, almost seemingly irreverent and blasphemous depictions of raw, honest speech toward God. They show us figure after figure who are clinging to God in their darkness by accusing and questioning and interrogating. Hebrew Bible scholar and former warden of Tyndale House, Derek Kidner, once described the jarring nature of the Psalms this way. He said, the very presence of these prayers in scriptures is a witness to God's understanding. God knows how humans speak when they are desperate. And hear me this morning, in all of this, the Psalms are not trying to give us theological answers for our pain and suffering, but they're offering us a window into the way humans have prayed and processed and praised through every emotion with God for millennia. 
To return to the words of Calvin, the Psalter perfectly describes every aspect of the inner working of the human soul. The Psalms offer us a mirror. They reflect our own experiences. And this morning, I want to invite us into these questions. What does praise look like? What does praise feel like? And what does praise sound like? And as it turns out, what I want to suggest to you this morning is that in spite of our apprehensions, praise looks like sadness and grief. It feels like pain and sorrow. And it sounds like questions, accusation, and protest. And all of this is at the heart of the text we're examining. Look there with me. Psalm chapter 88. I'll start reading at verse 1. Yahweh, my God who delivers by day, I have cried out by night in front of you. May my prayer come before you. Bend your ear to my resounding noise. Notice the psalm here begins with the psalmist crying out to the God who delivers. You know, these first two words are actually some of the most positive words in the entire psalm. As we're going to see, they make one of three petitions that are surrounded by various forms of accusation and interrogation and these sort of rhetorical questions that the psalmist presses toward God. You see, the psalmist has followed the ancient paths of Yahweh. The psalmist knows that Yahweh has the ability to deliver him from his circumstances to put things to right. But in spite of Yahweh's ability, he's been crying out day and night without any response. The phrase day and night is an idiom. It means he's been praying all the time. Are you with me? The psalmist has been ceaselessly crying out to God, constantly directing his petitions to the source of his deliverance. He's been crying out constantly. The noise, the screams, the praise, they're emerging from the depths of his pain and sorrow, but it seems that God is just not listening. Psalm 88 verse 3, because my whole person is full of bad experiences and my life has arrived at Sheol, I am thought of with people who go down to the pit. I've become like a man without strength, an outcast among the dead, like the slain lying in the grave who you have been mindful of no more when they're cut off from your hand. You've put me in the deepest pit, in dark places, in the depths. Upon me your wrath has pressed down. All your breakers have humbled me. You've taken my acquaintances even far from me. You've made me a great offense to them. I am in prison so that I cannot go out. My eye has become dim through humbling. Notice if you have it open there in front of you, Psalm chapter 88 verse 3 takes a significant turn. The psalmist now transitions towards accusation and interrogation. Are you with me? The psalmist moves from petition to now describing all of the reasons that he is frustrated with God. The writer is plagued by suffering. He's trapped on death's doorstep. He's become an outcast among all the peoples. He describes his state here, notice, as being imprisoned. He's unable to free himself from this bondage and all the lights are going out. The language is actually beyond bleak. The author here actually uses six different synonyms for the grave. He says, I'm in Sheol, I'm in the pit, I'm in the grave, in the depths, in perdition, in the land of oblivion. Listen, things are bleak, there's still some light, but listen, you've got to deliver soon because if you don't deliver soon, all the lights are going to go out. You're the only one who can, I'm in prison, are you going to move? Psalm 88, 9, I've called to you, Yahweh. Each day I've stretched out my palm to you. Notice back in 
to a kind of petition. Listen, I've called you, I've praised you every day. Where are you, God? The psalmist has grounded his hope and deliverance with God alone, but God seems to refuse to answer. Psalm 88, verse 10, do you do extraordinary things for the dead? The ghosts rise to confess you as your commitment recounted in the grave. Your truthfulness in Abaddon are extraordinary deeds made known in darkness, your faithfulness in the land of forgetting. Once again, the psalmist now comes back around to accusation and interrogation. The psalmist asks three questions, or six questions, and all of those questions imply no. Do you do miracles for the dead? No, according to the psalmist. Do ghosts rise to praise you? No. Is your covenant love recounted in the grave? No. Your truthfulness in Abaddon? No. Are your miracles made known in darkness? No. Your past saving deeds in the land of forgetting? No. Friends, I I think here we need to really slow down and let the questions sink in because I think that these questions cut straight to the heart of the character of God. And to me, when I read them, they feel like in some sense an all-out assault on God. Miracles, covenant love, truth, saving activity, where are they? Where are they? The psalmist is saying, you're able to perform miracles, but my miracle has not arrived. You claim to be loving towards your people, but all I'm experiencing is pain. You claim to be truthful, but you're not coming through on your word, and you're able to deliver, but your deliverance is nowhere on the horizon. Where are they? What does praise look like? What does praise feel like? What does praise sound like? Let me ask you, is this theologically correct speech? Not really. Is it honest speech? Yes. You see, the psalmist here is clinging to God in the name of God. And we need to take careful note of the rawness and the anguish of these words. Notice, these won't be found in other religious texts. If you go read other religious texts from other religions, you will not find words like these. These words are sacred scripture. I think we might expect these kinds of words and this kind of prayer coming from the lips of the ungodly. (laughs) But here in our sacred writings, apparently faithful worshipers praise like this. Psalm 88, 13, again, a petition, but I, Yahweh, I have cried out to you for help. In the morning, my plea meets you. Where are you? God, are you hearing me? Do you not care? Are you not the God of mercy, compassion, and covenant love? It seems as though you must be able to hear me, but for some reason, you refuse to respond. My plea must be coming to you in the morning. Are you just ignoring me? Psalm eighty-eight, fourteen: Yahweh, why do you reject me? Hide your face from me. I'm afflicted. I'm breathing my last since my youth. In other words, since the very beginning of my life, everything has been going downhill. I've borne your dreads. I despair. Your acts of rage, they've passed over me. Your acts of terror have destroyed me. They're around me like water all day. They've encircled me all together. You've taken friend and neighbor from me. And then notice the last line of the psalm. Darkness is my closest friend. In fact, actually, the last word of the psalm, almost nowhere to be found, is just darkness. It almost has no relationship to the rest of the psalm. Where are you? Are you coming? Are you going to move? Darkness. In the final turn, the psalmist accuses God with every ounce of strength that he can muster. God, you are the cause, the problem, and apparently you are not the solution. 
This is unwarranted rejection and senseless hiddenness. Where are you? If you take up and read the Psalms, you'd notice that usually Psalms of lament turn to praise. This is one of the few Psalms that does not move toward praise. It just ends in darkness as the psalmist just seems to fade away into the black, slinking into the darkness of death. The psalmist feared that the darkness would overtake him, and now in the end, it seems as though it finally has, feeling abandoned by God, and all he sees, and all he knows, and all he is experiencing is darkness. Friends, what does praise look like? What does praise feel like? What does praise sound like? And I think Psalm 88 confronts us with an important corrective. Praise looks like sadness and grief. Praise feels like pain and sorrow. Praise sounds like questions, accusation, and protest. You see, God is not interested in us trying to bottle up our emotions or sanitize our speech with cleaned up spiritual language or wear masks or put on theatrical performances of praise. God accepts our accusation. God invites our interrogation and he welcomes our protest. Ingar Floisky, in his book, When God Becomes My Enemy, writes this, Lamenters, in effect take the bewildering situation to God, whom they still believe and confess to be almighty, good, just, and rich in steadfast love. The psalmist does not resolve the tension. They take it to God. In all of this, we protest to God. Notice that direction, not to our friends, not to our enemies. We protest to God because things are not as they should be. We protest not simply because we think our present circumstances will change, but we protest because it is a defiant demonstration of truth in the face of the tyranny of death. God, you are good, so why aren't you moving? God, you are just, so where is justice? You are loving, where is your love? As Hebrew Bible scholar Samuel Ballantine once put it, we protest because we hold to God in the name of God. You said it, I'm clinging, and I'm not going to let go. And so as we make the turn this morning, I think there are just four things I want to say about Psalm 88, four things about protests and about laments that I think we're invited to learn. I'm going to say them all up front if you're taking notes first. Darkness comes for all. Two, darkness cannot always be explained. Three, protest is an appropriate response. And four, accusation and interrogation help keep hope alive. So let me say a brief word about each of these first. If you're taking notes, darkness comes for all. Are you with me? It's easy to say, yeah, or it's hard to say, yeah, but it's true, isn't it? Psalm 88 teaches us that darkness will come. No one is exempt in this life from experiencing pain and suffering and sorrow. And at varying points in our long and winding journey under the sun, we've all found ourselves, or we will all find ourselves, like the author of Psalm 88, shrouded in deep darkness. And I think the Psalter in general, and Psalm 88 in particular, confronts our false expectations. I think sometimes we think that the righteous, the faithful, if we pray just the right way and do all the right things, if we give of our money, then we won't experience pain and suffering because after all, we're God's people, right? Put differently, many of us think that if we're high status or we're spiritually elite or we're externally prosperous, that we will be preserved from experiencing pain and suffering. And it's important that we understand no one is exempt from darkness, But when we experience darkness, it doesn't mean that we're lost or we deserve it or that we've strayed. It just means that darkness is here. 
I don't know if you noticed this, but the superscription at the beginning of Psalm 88 reads this way. That's the, the heading of the psalm. A song, a psalm of the Korahites, to the leader according to Mahalath, uh, Lianoth, a maskal of Heman the Ezraite. I don't know if you know this, because uh, these are the things we skip over, right? The writer of this psalm was a man named Heman. Can you say Heman? Heman. Well done. A little bit of backstory, because I'm pretty positive most of you don't know who Heman is. Heman was one of the Levitical singers. In other words, he was one of the core members of a very, and I say very small group of people who were placed in charge of the service of song in the temple to Yahweh. Heman was designated by King David to lead the people of Israel in praise, to prophesy before the people and to be a priestly musician. 1 Chronicles 25 speaks of Haman with very high regard. It puts it this way. All of these were the sons of Heman, the king's seer, according to the promise of God to exalt him. For God had given Heman 14 sons and three daughters. They were all under the direction of their daughter for the music in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres for the service of the house of God. All that to say this, one thing, Heman was one of the key worship leaders in the temple alongside the priests during the days of David. Heman was devout, he was highly regarded, and according to 1 Chronicles, he was exalted by God. And in spite of all of that, Heman still found himself in the midst of thick and unexplainable darkness. In the psalm, I don't know if you noticed, Heman references both the outer and the inner darkness, Heman writes regarding the outer darkness. He has physical ailments. He describes it as being near death. He's socially sort of in darkness since he's been abandoned by all his friends, but he's also spiritually in darkness as he's now experiencing religious alienation. That's all this outer darkness. But he also writes about inner darkness. He feels in his soul rejection. He doesn't feel the felt presence of God. He has a type of hollowness, deep within his soul. You know, I think there are seasons where we experience outer darkness, but inwardly we're being strengthened and renewed day by day. I think there are other times where we experience inner darkness while everything seems to be going our way externally. But then there are unique seasons, what people in the history of the church have called the dark night of the soul, where we experience the heaviness of both outer and inner darkness. And I think we have to learn again and again to see that it is impossible to exist within a world as broken as ours without undergoing pain and suffering in the process. We will all experience inner and outer darkness. And what I love about our sacred writings, what I love about the great tradition of our faith is it does not shy away from articulating that reality. We need to learn to anticipate darkness. 50 of the 150 Psalms are Psalms about lament, protest, and darkness. All of that because it's part of the human journey. Are you with me? In the movie, The Princess Bride, maybe you remember it. There is a conversation between the princess who's been kidnapped and her rescuer in which she says, you mock my pain. And do you remember what he replies? He says, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Life is pain. Anyone who says differently is selling something. Hear me this morning. Heman is not trying to sell you anything. Our scriptures and the Christian faith are not trying to sell you anything. There is pain in this life. In this world, you will have trouble. And we do take heart, but we will still have trouble. You know, Psalm 88, this is fascinating to me, is the only psalm that was penned by Heman, the great worship leader. He's arguably one of the greatest worship leaders in Israel's history. And his one contribution 
his deep reflection, the one song of praise that he offered to the people of God is one of protest, accusation, and darkness. Maybe he knows something that we don't know. Maybe he knows what praise looks like. He knows what it feels like, and he knows what it sounds like, and that's why he offers us Psalm 88. A psalm that never resolves, that begins and ends in darkness. Heman's singular contribution as an expert in praise is Psalm 88. Charles Spurgeon describes the psalm this way. In this psalm, Heman makes a map of, how life, of his life's history. He puts down all the dark places through which he's traveled. And Spurgeon says this, now that is real prayer, laying your case before the Lord. Robert Moberly puts it this way, the predominance of laments at the very heart of Israel's prayers means that the problems that give rise to lament are not something marginal or unusual, but rather are central. Moreover, they show that the experience of anguish and puzzlement is not a sign of deficient faith, something to be outgrown or put behind one, but rather is intrinsic to the very nature of faith. So number one, darkness comes for all. Number two, darkness cannot always be explained. You know, when the darkness comes, I think that we need to try to resist more than we do to offer our banal platitudes and myopic theological positions. Darkness is often unexplainable. Darkness comes and it overtakes us, and sometimes it can be explained, and more often than not, it feels like it can't. And I get it, we all want answers, but sometimes there are just no answers, It seems to me that pain and suffering actually reveal some of our deepest sins. I think when pain and darkness come, it reveals that some of our sins of arrogance and pride start to emerge because we assume arrogance and pride, that we know why it's here, that we have solutions to the problems. So we start to speak on behalf of God and we offer these banal, truncated reasons for people's suffering. And I think that we imagine that we have a kind of mastery and control that we can explain why suffering is taking place or why someone is at the death, uh, why someone is on death's doorstep or why their loved one is abandoning the faith. But most often, can we be honest? We just don't have all the answers. Are you with me? Elie Weisel, a Romanian-born American writer, professor, and Holocaust survivor, in his book Night, describes arriving at Birkenau an extermination camp in the Auschwitz complex. This is what he writes. Never shall I forget that night, the first night in camp. that turned my life into one long night, seven times sealed. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the small faces of the children whose bodies I saw transformed into smoke under a salient sky. Never shall I forget those flames that consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget the nocturnal silence that deprived me for all eternity of the desire to live. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. Never shall I forget those things, even were I condemned to live as long as God himself. Never. What can you say to an experience like that? Certainly you can't say it's all for the best. God has a greater good, and his plan requires that all of these people die. In moments like these, I I want to ask the question, what does praise look like? What does praise feel like? What does praise sound like? There are no answers. There is no clarity, and sometimes there just is no comfort. What can you say? We need to learn to sit in the darkness and wait, sometimes, sometimes for long stretches without answers. Psalm 88 teaches us we don't deny it. 
We don't deceive ourselves with pious words and we don't try to explain it, but we allow it to stand in some sense as a severe attack on our faith. And all of this because in the Psalms, there is no quick and easy resignation to suffering. There's always struggle, there's anxiety, and there's doubt. Number one, darkness comes for all. Number two, darkness cannot always be explained. Now, number three, lament is protest. And this is at the heart of what I really want to say to us this morning, that protest is an appropriate response in the face of darkness and suffering. Psalm 88 shows us that it's not just an appropriate response. Sometimes when it comes to our relationship with God, protest is a necessary response. Psalm 88 teaches us that while darkness may not be explainable, we are invited to express our pains, to voice our accusations, and to cross-examine God through deep interrogation. Pain may be subjective, our speech may be theologically incorrect, and our circumstances may be momentary, but the Psalms show us that we are permitted to speak to God as though our pain is objective, our words are true, and our circumstances are permanent. As noted by J. Richard Middleton from his excellent book, Abraham's Silence, it doesn't have to be theologically correct speech, but it has to be gut honest speech. And contrary to appearances, that desperate, honest voicing of pain to God is not blasphemous, he says, but is a holy, redemptive act. He goes on to say this, following the lead of the psalmists, we can take our anger, our doubts, and all the dismay and the terror of life, and we can put them at the feet of the Most High. We can bring our pain to the throne of God and say, you're supposed to be faithful, but I don't see it. You're supposed to be good, but I don't experience it. Psalm 88 shows us that we are invited to protest because in our protesting, we are holding to God in the name of God. Are you with me? We protest because we believe in God. We protest because we want to see the miracle. We protest because we want to be wrapped in love. We protest because we want to see his truth. And we protest because we want to know his deliverance in the land of the living. And at the core, one of the things that I want to invite us into seeing this morning is that at the heart of lament is protest. Psalm 88 teaches us that we can come to God with our protest, not because we think it will change our circumstances, but because protest is a defiant demonstration of our trust in God in the face of tyranny and death. If you take up and read the scriptures, there are many who protest, but sort of the example par excellence of protest is Job. Job refuses to let go of God. Job clings to God against God. But if you read all 42 chapters, you will see he questions, he accuses, and he interrogates. Job unrestrained cries out, bleeding every ounce of his emotions towards God. And the long and winding story reveals that while Job's friends may appear to be righteous pious and devoted based on their speech and their sort of lofty theological explanations, in the end, we learn that it is only Job who speaks rightly of God. Psalm 42, verse 7, after Yahweh had spoken these words to Job, Yahweh said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my anger rages against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So all of that protest, all of that anger, all of that lament, that is right speech according to God. And we protest because I think at the heart that's what it means to wrestle with God. Ronald Roheiser puts it this way, we must trust that God understands our humanity. God can handle our anger, self-pity, and resistance. As I've aged, 
I've come to realize that being with God is like being with a trusted friend. God wants us with all our wandering weakness to be human in his presence with ease, with comfort, and with the feeling that we are home. And he writes this. And later in life, we can become intimate enough with God to, be preci- to precisely be bold as friends who have known each other for a long time have a right to be. You know, we hide our true speech from those whom we're not closest with. Are you with me? Those whom we love, whom we know, whom we trust. Those are the people with whom we say often some of the most offensive, volatile, and staggering things. Those deepest thoughts that we would not utter to anybody else. Because when you are in the place, so when you're in a place with one you love and with whom you trust, you let it fly. Are you with me? You let it fly. And sometimes it just bubbles out. Are you with me? Those who are married in the room or have children, you know. That's just what happens sometimes. It's like lamentous protest. And we've all done it by accident. Are you with me? We've all been in a moment where our spouse or a close friend or our child will do something and we immediately say, you always do this. Okay, well, is that true? No, they don't always do that. So is it correct speech? No. Is there truth to the speech? There's still some truth to it. And I think that's what we see in these protest psalms. We see this honest speech. We see the psalmist speaking to God as though he is a friend because here's what happens when we do this. All of this reveals a scandalizing truth that lament and protest may be the most faithful form of praise. Let that sink in. Psalm 88 may be the most faithful and the most hopeful form of praise. You see, protest and praise are not opposites because the speech of Psalm 88 is authentic, gut-wrenching, faithful speech directed toward God through darkness for him to come through. And that leads to my final reflection this morning that protest and lament are actually a sign of hope. Accusation and interrogation keep our hope in God alive. Here's why, because they show that we've not yet given up on God. We're still speaking to God. We're bringing it to God, that we're refusing to give up on God. Accusation and interrogation, these emerge as our monologue that we are throwing against a dark and terrifying void. And it is, in the end, our demonstration of our unadulterated trust in God. Walter Brueggemann puts it this way, at the very least... We may take Psalm 88 as attestation of Israel's candor about God and before God. And yet the reiteration of verses 1, 2, 9, and 13 also attest that unanswered prayer does not lead to lack of faith or silence or resignation. It leads rather to more urgent, uh, vigorous petition for, is- for Israel has no other source of help. And all of this, because listen to me this morning, friends, while God may not always be on call, it does not mean that we stop calling. God may not always be on call. It may feel as though he does not hear you and he has been silent, but that does not mean that you stop calling. N.T. Wright describes the hope of lament this way, within every lament is a latent hope. God hears and God cares. Otherwise, why would you bother to shout? The alternative is catatonic despair. Our laments lead us to listen and to spiritually discern collective action. Their protest against the brokenness of the world, against the evil that seems to run rampant at times through the good creation. Lament shouts, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And while we may be inclined to think of the speech of Psalm 88 as evidence that the psalmist is drained of all hope, 
the protests, the accusation, the interrogation, they are actually a sign that hope is still pulsing through his veins. The psalm may end in darkness, but as the psalmist slinks away, notice that even as he dies, he still clings to God. And I think that's the hidden miracle of the psalm, that the psalmist still clings to God even in the face of the shadow of death. That in spite of all the internal and the external darkness, he refused to let go of God. And to me, that is the ultimate sign of trust. Bethlehem Tanner, in her excellent commentary, puts it this way. It speaks to times when there is no reason, theological or otherwise, that can explain the images of violence burned into my brain. It also speaks to those who die feeling as if God is nowhere to be found. For here, she says, in this psalm, their words of fear and anger appear as sacred scripture showing that God did indeed hear their cries. It also speaks of God, a God who is creator and king of the universe and who also does not condemn honest, painful conversation with the humans he created. And in that, it may represent better than other texts the love that God has for us, these earthly creatures. Look, Psalm 88 might feel to you like the darkest expression of praise. Maybe to you, when you read Psalm 88, you see no praise at all, but I have personally found this psalm to be the most hopeful confronting and assuring Psalm in the entire Psalter because Psalm 88 has taught me and my soul again and again that God welcomes the deepest parts of who I am. That my praise can look like sadness. That my praise can feel like pain and sorrow and it can sound like questions and accusation and protest because God invites every part of who we are. And the only real criterion for praise is that we come to God honestly as we are. That's praise. And I have found the most hope in Psalm 88 because to return to the words of John Calvin, the Psalms are an anatomy of the human soul. I have found all of myself in the Psalms. There is no part of me that I do not find expressed, articulated, or validated in the Psalms. What does praise look like? What does praise feel like? What does praise sound like? It looks, feels, and sounds like Psalm 88. Psalm 88 teaches us that darkness will come for us all. It can't always be explained, but protest is an appropriate response. And in the end, our accusations and and interrogations toward God, they keep our hope alive. And friends, this morning, I do not have theological answers for all your pain. I might be a Bible and language nerd, but I just don't have answers for that stuff. But what I do know is this, is that the Psalms offer us a window into the way that we are invited to pray and to process through our darkness. The Psalms teach us that to protest is an appropriate response, that protest praise will be your defiant action in the face of your dark circumstances. And I wanna invite us this morning to really respond I want to invite us this morning to allow our praise to look, feel, and sound like protest together. To allow our lament to be directed towards God. I want to invite you this morning to refuse to let go of God in spite of whatever darkness you're facing. To cling to God against God. To question, to accuse, and to interrogate God. To bleed all of your emotions from your heart to God. And in the process, like Job, in doing so, we will speak rightly of God. Because he is the God of miracles. 
because his way is the way of love, because he is truth and he is the God of our deliverance. There is no other. So we come to him this morning and whatever you're facing, as I, I wanna invite the prayer team to come in just a minute. I wanna invite you to come and receive prayer, to, to protest, to lament, to praise this morning, whatever you're facing, that this is an appropriate response. I wanna invite us this morning in the end, as the prayer team comes and as you come to receive, I just wanna urge you, cling to God in the name of God. Cling to God in the name of God. Ask God where your miracle is because he is the God of miracles. Ask him to feel his love because his way is love. Ask him to move on his word because he is truth and demand that he deliver. Yes, I said demand that he deliver because it doesn't have to be theologically correct speech. It just has to be honest speech. So this morning, I invite you to come. The Psalms invite us to come to bring all of who we are to God and to cling to God in the name of God. Let's pray together. You are the God of miracles, God, and there are those of us in the room this morning that, that we really need a miracle. God, you're the God of love, and there are people in the room this morning that have never known your love. You're the God of faithful presence, and there are people in the room this morning that do not feel your presence. God, you're the God of truth, and yet we feel a little bit like you're not coming through on your word. The world is very broken. You are the God of deliverance. We ask God that you would deliver. Come now, God, we ask that you would deliver. Come now, God, we ask that you would deliver. And so as we stand this morning, and I invite the prayer team to come, I just wanna invite you to come receive prayer, to cling to God in the name of God, to bring your accusation and your protest and your question, because God welcomes those things. He welcomes those things. And as, as we sing, we're gonna sing trust together this morning. We're gonna sing that we trust. Thank you so much for listening to this message. We pray that you have received truth and have been encouraged. For more information about First Assembly, how to get connected, and to listen to our latest worship albums, please visit our website at www.fa.church.